Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would make us able to hear it, not just the words in this text, but your very word spoken to us. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we continue today, part two of our series in the Practices of Love book. I hope you've all been uh, following along and enjoying that. Um, Jonathan Good has been leading a midweek study, which kicked off this week, and I hear went very well. And so if you've not had a chance to join that group, would encourage you to do so. Um, still time to jump in. It picks up this coming Thursday. Um, but today we're going to talk about simplicity, simple living, and how we live a simple life. And I want to do so by briefly looking at our first two readings, really uh, one verse from Deuteronomy 18 and then another from 1 Corinthians 8. And that first reading, what, it's, what stood out to me is just the sense in which God speaks to his people. Time and time again in that passage, you see that God speaks and then we are commanded by the Lord to respond. So there's a word spoken by God, and then we are expected to speak that word to others. He speaks, and we speak it into being. And yet we are given an invitation and an opportunity. We are free creatures. And so as free creatures, when the Lord speaks, we then choose. Do we live in alignment with that word, or do we speak a different word through the way we live? Do we speak a different word into being? The Lord may speak life, and yet we may at times choose to speak death. He may speak freedom, we speak bondage. He may speak simplicity, and we instead choose to speak excess. The Lord may speak generosity, and we through our actions speak scarcity, or we speak greed. I think that's how I want to frame that Old Testament reading. And so we are not prophets, per se, the way that the Old Testament reading imagines. And yet with that framework, listen again to verse 20 of Deuteronomy 18. But any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods or who presumes to speak in my name a word that I have not commanded the prophet to speak, that prophet shall die. Here's how I think we can think about that. When our lives deviate from the way of the Lord, when the Lord says this is the way of life and we choose through our actions to live a different way of being, we in a sense place ourselves on the way of death. We place ourselves on a path that leads to our own self-destruction. And so part of this aim today, part of the goal of this series even, is to help us hear the word of God and then live it out, to put it into practice. These practices of love help us hear and then live the word spoken to us. And the way we want to do that today is to talk about our stuff the stuff that we own, the money that we make, how we live our actual lives. And I think this one is super important because of all the practices in this book, I think this may be one, maybe the chief, where we are tempted to double down on our own self-sufficiency, to double down on our own vision of what makes life good. And that's really the American way. And not just the American way, it's the human way. We as human beings are always prone to lose sight of the eternal, of the eternal life with God. And therefore, we assume the more stuff we can get, the happier and more comfortable we can make our lives now, simply the more life will be worth 
living. And we've believed this for a long time. This is uh, in, in our bones as human beings, and we will jump at the opportunity to do so. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, we were just noting that most of his ancestors, most of his uh, uh, entire really line of, of lineage comes from Eastern Europe. And his people in particular in the early 1900s uh, were living in Eastern Europe and uh, government employees of our country went over to his villages in the mountains and said to these people, what you make in 12 hours will uh, pay you the same amount of money for one hour of work if you come work in the coal mines in Pennsylvania. And so that's how his family got to this country. Uh, and I'm not speaking per se against uh, economic um, you know, immigration or that sort of thing. There's maybe real reasons to do so. And yet, uh, it was fascinating to just sit with that reality and the way in which entire villages, ancestral homelands uh, for his people for hundreds and hundreds of years were emptied out, literally ghost towns, um, where their entire village moved over uh, to work in the mines in the United States in the name of economic improvement. Um, and again, it's not that that's wrong, but I think we often accept the premise of situations like that or in our own lives. We accept economic gain without any second thought, without any question as to whether or not this might actually be a reason to pause or think twice about this. Because in that scenario, for example, the word spoken by our country was quite literally, make yourself something great. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And yet the word spoken to us today in Scripture by the Lord, is the word gift. It's a fundamental distinction that we have to receive and sit with. The word speaks, or the Lord speaks gift through his word. What do you have that you did not receive? That's the question our Lord poses to us. All of life is a gift. All of life, therefore, is received and offered back to God as a gift. And I think we see this in our 1 Corinthians reading today from chapter 8, especially verse 6, if you're following along. Verse 6, it's interesting. It's, you see this, the Father from whom all things exist. And then not just from whom, but this is so key, the Father for whom we exist. Similarly, Paul says, Jesus Christ is the one through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's as comprehensive as it possibly can be. There is not a single thing in existence that does not come from the word of God, from the very life of God. The breath you and I just breathed is because we are sustained and upheld by the life of God. And yet, we are given a choice. We receive that gift and choose to live in harmony with it, to cherish that gift and live as though it is actually a gift, or we can exploit it. We can distort its intended use. Because we can do this with gifts, right? If someone gives you a gift, you can choose how you respond to it, how you treat it. Uh, I've learned this as a parent. Uh, my youngest child, my son, um, for Christmas, got a, um, like a remote control car. And we, he and I, in that moment, kind of entered into a social contract of sorts. Like, we both knew this was not a cherished gift. <laughs> he knew there was not a ton of investment or time or thought put into this, and uh, it was treated accordingly. And so within about an hour, it could only turn to the right. <laughs> you know, like it just would only go in circles. A few hours later, the thing is dead entirely. Um, he did not cherish the gift he was given um, because I think he saw it for what it was. On the other hand, um, my son, he's six years old, my son loves pocket knives right now. 
uh, obsessed with pocket knives. He thinks they're the coolest things ever because it's as, about as close he, as he can get to a ninja sword. <laughs> like he knows it's, it's not quite, but it's at least allowed, whereas you know, a sword's just off limits. And so he's wanted a pocket knife. And interestingly, my grandfather, his whole life loved pocket knives. And I have several of them that I inherited after he died. And uh, this year, I gave my son one of my grandfather's pocket knives. Uh, it was not nice necessarily. Um, and yet the... Um, the family significance of that gift, you saw my son's eyes just get this big and he you know, holds it with both hands and he had a special box that he put it in and he just cherished it. He rose to the occasion, still to this moment. It has one spot on his desk. His whole room could be in disarray, but there's this one spot where that knife goes because he knew how valuable of a gift he'd been given and he treated it accordingly. He lived in alignment with the value of this gift. And I think there's something simple in that that maybe applies to the whole of the way we live our lives. The nature of gift that we've been given is more akin to the way I gave my son uh, my grandfather's pocket knife. We are meant to receive it as this incredible, cherished gift and uh, to live with reverence. When we talk about living in reverence towards the Lord, reverence for his creation, I think it's getting at that. It's getting at this idea of seeing how our life fits into this beautiful big picture that God's telling. Uh, and that's really maybe a segue into this book because uh, what this book then talks about in, in this second chapter is it's not just what we own. It's not just the stuff itself, but as the author says, it's how we own it. It's the way in which we approach the gift that we've been given. And he talks a good deal about lavish living. If you read the chapter, you will have seen about half the chapter or so, he kind of settles in on this idea of lavish living. He says it's on page 43, extravagant or elaborate living, taking well beyond what is befitting for us and meets our needs. And then I think needs become central to the conversation for us this week. Uh, we could ask ourselves, what do we truly need? Because when we ask ourselves that, I think most of our conversations around things we need often go to extremes, or we use that word fairly uh, liberally, don't we? We say, I need a second home. I need a vacation home. I need a new car. I need a new wardrobe. You probably don't need any of those things. And so we confuse our wants and our needs. And yet one of the things I like in this chapter is he says, really, those types of needs or those types of desires are not the best indicators of your actual uh, life, the life you're actually living. He says it's far more in the petite, nitty-gritty stuff of your daily decisions. Here's what he says on 44. For many of us, living in excess doesn't express itself in extremities. It doesn't translate to tying $4,000 to balloons and releasing it into the air. It doesn't have to amount to owning six houses, two of which we never use, and four Rolls Royces. And then here's the great line. He says, excess comes in petite sizes too. Isn't that a good line? Excess comes in petite sizes too. I'll give you two examples of petite excess in my life, um, just to kind of help you think of how that could actually play out. Uh, my wife loves coffee mugs. I think a sixth of our kitchen is dedicated to coffee mugs. Uh, and so it's become like a reoccurring joke in our family. I'll be doing the dishes and I'll wash a coffee mug I've never seen before. And I'll kind of hold it up and be like, 
You know, what's the story here? And she'll say, oh, I, I thought we needed a new coffee mug. Um, and this happens maybe every month or so. Um, we don't need it, and yet it's kind of this, just this uh, reoccurring thing. You know, we, we collect coffee mugs, it seems. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a good hat. I love a good baseball hat. And I feel like one of my life's missions is to find the perfect hat. And I've not yet found it. And so you can buy a hat, and immediately when you buy it, uh, you can still be on the search for that next hat that will fit just right, that'll, you know, uh, you know, say what you want it to say, speak to whatever season of life you're in, whatever it may be. It's ridiculous. Um, and yet, as I sit with those examples, for me in my life, excess or a, a posture of excess is probably found in the stuff of coffee mugs and baseball hats, not in the stuff of third or fourth cars or third or fourth houses. And so needs and wants and excess and simplicity needs to, in your own thinking, in your own life, get to that kind of granular level. You actually need to apply it in very specific ways. I think this is why simplicity is actually really helpful, not just for your own sake, but one of the things this book's trying to push us towards is to say, how does this kind of petite thinking, this daily deeds level of thinking, create space for us to be people of generosity, to be people who care for and love our neighbors? Because this is really really important. Simplicity as a virtue is not an end in and of itself, but simplicity opens up space for you to care about other people. Because I think we might be tempted when I talk about simplicity to think minimalism. You think modern aesthetic. You think capsule wardrobe. I'm going to only have one pair of designer jeans. That is not the virtue of simplicity. That's just a, a modern form of consumerism. <laughs> what we're getting at is the idea of I actually think less about myself. I carve out very real space so that I have room for other people. I live simply, not in a self-reverential way, but for the sake of others. It gives us space. And I think that's where I want to land today. As you leave today, the worst thing you could do is to simply think about simplicity to leave this room, or if you're online, to turn off the stream, and then say, I'm going to think a little bit about why I should live simply. No, you actually need to apply this in concrete ways, in the daily deeds of your own relationship to money and giving and consuming and habits around these things. And so I would just encourage you to, to use your imagination. Think about ways to live simply. Maybe you open a small giving account that you put a little bit of money in. This is not planned charitable giving. This is not giving for tax purposes. This is money that is readily available that you could use to pay to have your neighbor's yard cut when it's not been touched for months. This is money you could use to buy a meal for your neighbor who just lost a loved one. Um, think of concrete ways you can do this. Maybe, uh, maybe more boldly, instead of just sending it out, you find ways to invite people in. When you go to the grocery store next, buy a meal you don't intend on making that week. Buy a non-perishable meal that you leave in your pantry and have at the ready so at a moment's notice, you could double the size of your dinner if someone needs to join you at your dinner table. Um, similarly, and I know not everyone has room for this, what would it look like to be ready and waiting to offer hospitality by uh, having a guest stay in your home? Uh, do you have room in your home to set up a guest room? That's one of the things I love about my own uh, childhood. Uh, my family did this really well. We, we had room for a guest room and we had a dedicated guest room and it was our 
most pristine room in the house. No one was allowed in the guest room. It looked like a hotel room. The sheets were, were always fresh. The bed was made. A towel and a washcloth was there. Basic toiletries. The whole house could be a total chaotic disaster. And yet that room was perfect. Because my family valued hospitality and said we want to be ready. And we did. We had people stay with us all the time. You may live in an apartment. You may have no room at all for a guest room. What if you had a, a Rubbermaid tub? What if you had a tub that had an airbed and clean sheets and a little bag of toiletries in it that you put in a closet? Just as a simple way to say, I'm going to create space for others in my life. These are the kind of things you can think about. This is the imaginative space you can enter into when you choose to live simply because it's not just for us. Simplicity allows us to live hospitable lives. It allows us to live life in reference to the Lord, to the gift of life that we have been given. And so that's my encouragement to us this week. May we uh, press into this in concrete ways. Don't just think about simplicity. Find the way you're going to actually apply this to the story of your life this week. May it be so. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. As you're able, would you stand and we'll continue with our service as we affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.